You're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor, Editor-in-Chief of GamesIndustry.biz, and joining me is pretty much the whole team. We have got Managing Editor Brendan Sinclair. How are you, sir? Pretty much the whole team. You can't forget Jeffrey here. I don't. I have not forgotten Jeffrey. He's just not here. Yeah, no, no, he's, he's, he's unfortunately he's unwell. He's got he's got well and truly got E three flu. I imagine, despite the fact that E three didn't actually happen. It doesn't matter if it's in person or not. It's larger than in person. <laughs> How are you, sir? Oh. How are you holding up? Not well, clearly. <laughs> but I'm here, so let's talk video games. Yes, let's. Uh, also with us, talking video games is Academy writer Marie D'Alessandri. How are you? Uh, like Brendan, you know, just holding up, wishing for the weekend. <laughs> We're nearly there. This is the last thing we do on a Friday. Certainly UK-wise, this is the last thing we do on a Friday. So you only have to get through an hour of confused rambling and and we're there but it isn't because i finish at five not at four so after this i still have an hour where i need to pretend that i'm reading emails and stuff which i do i i actually do work during that hour just to be clear (laughs) can we consider the effect on the audience of like coming in on monday or something and opening up the podcast story and listening to it and it's just us moaning about the last (laughs) bit of the work week on friday each week yeah this this seems cruel. <laughs> it does. It does. But uh, you know, Mondays aren't much better than the ends of Fridays. So also joining us is news editor Daniel Partis. How are you? Hello. I am also in a post E3 and a post COVID vaccine swoon. So um, I'll do my best to be uh, t- to say normal things and sentences during this. You had, you had to deal with both during this week. That, that's something that no human should ever have to endure, <laughs> covering E3 and suffering a, a t- diluted version of a killer virus. Yep, there's was, there was no need for it, but you know, we, we power through. We got to the end, just... And lurking in the background, wincing at this attempt at a very organic intro, is our head of party, Chris Tring. How are you? Oh, this is beautiful. Um, I'm doing pretty well. Um, I'm actually, I'm. Well, it's 12 straight days now of uh, working, so I think you can tell. Um, but I actually, I really, uh, I'm I'm actually having a different type of post E3 come down. I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't normally get to do quite as much journalism and talking about games as I have done in the last 12 days. I spend a lot of my time in management meetings. So I've really enjoyed it. And, uh, and um, uh, kids, you know, hold on to that, to that, that, that job that you've got now. Um, <laughs> that's all I can say. I, uh, I, um, I, I loved the last, uh, uh, however many long we've been doing. How, what, what day is it? Um, I've enjoyed it. So I'm okay. I'm, I'm a bit sad that it's over. I think it was Brendan who, like, I think it was, it was Tuesday. Brendan was like, how is it not Friday? Yeah. And yeah, it, re- it really felt like that this year. Um, we are obviously going to talk about E3 slash Summer Game Fest slash all the other adjacent events slash whatever the hell you want to call this week of games news. Um, rather than doing the usual kind of wrap up, like, yeah, what did you think of this conference? What do you think of that conference? Like, we're going to do something slightly different. We have each picked out a trend or announcement or thing from the past week that we believe is interesting or we are interested in from an industry perspective very much with our gamesintry.biz goggles on and then at the end of the show we are going to go through our favorite games that we uh, we picked out we each kind of picked one title that we're most looking forward to who would like to volunteer to put forward their topic for discussion i don't know why i called for volunteers yeah, it always I mean... leads to awkward silences <laughs> Okay, go on then. I'll, I'll just go. That way it's done and I can go to bed. That's the spirit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, no, I did want to talk about uh, Take-Two uh, and commend Take-Two's effort to try and bring important discussions to 
um, the forefront of an event that is really not designed to do that, at least in its current form. Uh, so instead of doing their usual E3 games, I mean, I don't actually know what they typically do for E3, to be honest, but instead of doing a typical E3 presentation focusing on games, they've done that panel about diversity and inclusion. And they got so much hate <laughs> for it, like the type of hate you would expect when trying to talk about these things to a, an audience of, of gamers. Um, from yeah, people not really understanding what this had to do with E3. And I actually, I was the first one to be like, like until the last minute I was telling James like, surely there's more to it. Surely it's just not, like it's just not just a panel about diversity and inclusion. They're going to talk about games. And I was really surprised by the move. But no, it was just a panel and it didn't feel like it had a lot to do with E3, but maybe this should be a part of E3 a bit more. Uh, Brendan was telling me this week that talks were once part of E3, which I didn't know. Um, but yeah, I just think that was really cool that take to kind of expose themselves to criticism, I guess. Um, with this completely unexpected move and I think it's great that they just pushed this topic in front of potentially hundreds of thousands of viewers uh, all well knowing that get hate for it. So I don't know like whether a lot of people were actually interested by this talk but I think like even if it just had an impact on one person I felt like that's still a win because it's important enough that it's good, good on them for trying I guess. And yeah, considering how much our industry has to do in terms of diversity and inclusion, it would just be cool if actually more publishers were talking about this type of things and when they have such a big platform uh, that E3 is. And I'm specifically thinking about Ubisoft when I say this. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I just really commend Take-Two for trying. And I know it was a bit weird. And I know that like even people in the industry were a bit weirded out by, by the move. But I just think it, it wasn't perfect. I don't think they did a great job at actually explaining what they were doing and why they were doing it. But it's still great that they did it. And I just wanted to, yeah, give them a shout out. And also, actually, I just want to take the time to name the people who were on this panel, if that's okay. Just so can people can look up their good work, because they were very, very good panelists. So there was Jim Huntley, who's a professor and head of marketing at the University of Southern California and executive producer for USC Games. Uh, Susanna Pollack, who's the president of non-profit organization Games for Change. Gordon Bellamy, who's a professor of the practice of, the, of cinematic arts at USC, head of the USC Games Bridge Incubator and CEO of Gay Gaming Professionals. And Leila Shabir, who's the founder of Girls Make Games. And I highly encourage everyone to go and watch this talk because it was generally really, really good. And I've watched a lot of talks like since I've joined GI for the Academy, watching talks is like one of my, my number one task. And I thought this one was generally excellent and full of uh, good advice for companies who are trying to, who would want to try and do better in terms of diversity and inclusion. So go and watch it or read what I wrote about it on the Academy. I'll include a link to the, the write-up that Marie did in the show notes, which I believe has the full talk embedded in it. It does, I think. Yeah. If not, make sure it is before this episode goes live. It was it was interesting because uh, the way that you market something like that, the way that you advertise this this talk during E3, like I'm not sure what the strategy was. Like clearly they they understood that people are going to E3 with an expectation for you know game stuff, and they had just Take Two had had just um, announced an endowment, the Gerald A. Lawson endowment with USC Games for um black and indigenous game developers um 
that was pretty recent. That was a month or two ago, I think. And uh, Huntley was on the panel to, to talk about that. And it, it seemed like kind of it was a... Uh, at first, I thought it was just a way to get a little bit more mileage out of that. Mm. And the thing is, like, if you look at the official E3 schedule, it just said take two panel for that time. It didn't say, like, take two diversity panel. It didn't just say, you know, diversity and inclusion panel. Like, they put take two's name in it, and then they put the panel part in there to kind of, I guess that was the biggest clue that people were going to get, that it wasn't a, uh, you know, a, a conference full of game announcements. But, like, if the intent was, uh, this is important, and everyone needs to know about this, so we're going to put it right in your face in the middle of E3 when you're all expecting to talk about games. We're going to say, like, no, this is important here. Eat your vegetables uh, and, and listen to this. Like, maybe that's one way to go about it. But even then, I, I just kind of felt like having something like that in the middle of talk about games and announcements like that might have been more more effective if, if it were more explicit you know what they were mm. meaning to do by putting it in there like that because mm. as as it is it um it irritated a whole lot of people uh and and you know i didn't i didn't so much you know have a whole lot of sympathy for those people um to be really upset that people would dare talk about this at, at, at e3 but it's I, i'm not sure it accomplished whatever aim it was setting out for yeah, I have to. I have to say, um, I, I read Murray's right, but I didn't watch the session. But I, I, uh, I watched a couple others, and any other session that also was the voices of E three stuff, which wasn't Take Two's panel, wasn't part of that that they did. It was filled with almost every single one of them was filled with, with like sleeping emojis or um, uh, people going, "What is this?" You know, annoyed that there's not there aren't game announcements here. Um, and I think with the schedule thing, I, I have to say. I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for people running digital events, but I think that's a disconnect between... I think Take-Two always knew this was a diversity panel because I spoke to Take-Two a month ago about what they were doing at E3, and it was always part of the plan. I just think that when it came to actually the schedule being put together, it was just done hastily by somebody working on E3. I know this because in the credits, um, we're listed as gamesindusty.biz. Nobody... <laughs> just to check that um and um uh, i uh, everybody who was on the media panel that i was on was was given the job title of editor-in-chief and i think only two people actually have the job title of editor-in-chief on that panel it was it there were there was a little attention to detail issues um and i think you saw that in some of the branding and, and some and so that i think that's probably what went on there rather than <clears throat> anything more strategic um uh, but yeah, E3 felt like a. Uh, I think it was really great. Actually, I thought e one thing I'll say, I was really pleased with E3 is actually how diverse they tried to be throughout the whole their their whole show. Like, or, they were, I don't mm. think I saw a panel that certainly I didn't see a panel with all guys on it. I don't think I saw any panel with all white people on it either. Um, any session, any of the voices of E3 stuff, the hosts, everything. I thought they did a pretty good job there. And that um, I mean that's you've got to do that really. But I was just I was very i thought they did quite a good job overall but um take two in particular with that panel was brilliant i didn't count it up but like even you're, you're right like the the ho the diversity of the hosts both around the panels and the actual presentations like the pre and post stream stuff seemed you know really good like really strong good range of people but even like the the game protagonists i haven't actually counted up but it 
feels like, and it's always dangerous when you say feels like because that shows absolutely no empirical evidence, but it feels like there were more, there was a bigger, a wider diversity of, of protagonists and player characters this time around. I feel like I've seen a lot more kind of people of colour that you're going to be able to play in games or, you know, a few more female protagonists. Like, I don't, I'm, I'm kind of waiting for like, uh, I think it's um, Feminist Frequency usually does the older gender balance split. Um, so I'm kind of waiting for the results of that to, to come out. I don't know if anyone does a kind of a racial analysis. Maybe that's something I do next week. Um, but it, it, it felt like there was a they were a bit more cognizant of, yeah, the need for industry diversity, both within the games themselves and around the, you know, a, a, around the presentation of them. Yeah, they've been getting better at that over the years, uh, I think. But it, it's it's nice to to see it, you know, continue. And then also, like Chris mentioned even in a, in a conference where there are signs that things were put together hastily, um, that was something that they didn't just sort of let uh, slip through the cracks there and that they were paying attention to that as a, as a priority over things like, you know, the spelling of a website or people's titles. Or giving Chris my job title. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, now, I'm now James's job. <laughs> And it's that same feeling without having any proof of it, but I did feel too that things in terms of uh, diversity of the hosts was much better. And typically every year I actually have a count of how many women are as part of host uh, are hosting um, the events. And I actually didn't do it this year, I forgot, but I did feel like it was much better because I remember years where I could barely, like there was five women across the entire um, all the three conferences and this year it felt like much more thought and care had been put into that so that was nice but again they don't have any proof it's just like a vague feeling like oh yeah it does sound better but actually is it really so I think we should look into it essentially Danielle what was your big take from the week this was your first professional uh, first time covering E3 like full-time rather than kind of as freelance or hobbyist like what was your big take from the week um I think one of the the highlights for me that I think went uh, really well was the the wholesome game showcase. Um, it mm. was I think it was put together and presented really well, and it gave so many little developers um, this huge platform uh, basically to to showcase their, their themselves and their games and the studios etc. Uh, and I think that was really cool. Um, the one thing that kind of let it down was just how little eyes were on it compared to the rest of the showcase because i know it was it was kind of separate from from e3 really um it's kind of its own little thing but i feel like there could have been more effort from uh either e3 or from from jeff at, um summer game fest to maybe have more of their audience sent over to this um to this indie showcase or for more support there because there was at one point i think there was like less than ten thousand people watching the the indie showcase and then there was uh, like nearly a hundred thousand people watching a, a assassin's creed clip of a character walking very slowly and i just thought <laughs> maybe that, that you know there could have been more effort into into shifting the audience over to somewhere where there was good content happening that makes sense i can i mean i can see what happened obviously e3 sold their slots right they sold their spots and uh there's no way wholesome games or anything's going to pay for that and equally jeff teamed up with day of the devs that was the one that that was the indie showcase that uh he was partnering with um but i i kind of agree i kind of felt like we, daniel you said something in a other podcast which i really liked when you said e3 is like a state of mind or mm. something um, <laughs> rather than and and 
But it is. I mean, we, we, we get caught up in event politics because we're in the industry. But E3 to most people is just a period of time of which video games are shown, announced and talked about. And it's not really about Summer Games Fest and who runs that. And it's not really about Jeff Keighley versus the ESA. Um, it's it's just a period of time. And um, uh, I, I, I kind of feel that it's really the job. I mean, we did a quite a good job of it. I think everyone tried to sort of wrap all of these things, connect these things together. And even if Wholesome Games only did have 10,000 people viewing it, and they are indie games, they weren't going to attract the same amount of attention. Although if it was on the E3 stream, it would have done a lot better. Um, I think the media did quite a good job of covering it. Yeah, I think that's yeah. the thing that really pleased me is that because it was digital, because they're not running around on the show floor trying to play cyberpunk or watch someone else play cyberpunk and convince you that it runs perfectly fine. Um, <laughs> it was really nice uh, to see that you know IGN's not just us who would cover this stuff anyway, or, or Rock Paper Shotgun and those sort of indie pre- uh, websites. But the, um, the the big websites go to them as well and watch and sort of report on them. I, that was the thing. So although maybe it only had 10,000 people watching live, but I, it's, it's it's spread beyond that. And, and so that I was quite... That's the one positive I had from the digital stuff is it gave the indies, um, Wholesome Games, Day of the Devs, all of that stuff just had a little bit more limelight than they would have done, I think, if it was a physical event. Um, it was definitely a highlight for me too. And it's just... We mentioned it on the newscast the other day with um, Cassia Curran, but um, how it's just nice to have a showcase like Wholesome Direct because otherwise it is just so many shooters during E3. Like there's yeah. 90% of the games showed during the conferences are, are shooters and I'm not a shooter person. And like just the Wholesome Direct was that little little bubble in time where it was just nice and cozy and I just love this trend and I just think it's nice to show games that are a bit different and that are trying to to show that there's more to video games than just shooting people and um, yeah that's it <laughs> it just makes me happy <laughs> I believe I read somewhere that uh, 77% of all games shown over the past week have some form of violence in them and if you only mm. count games shown at official E3 uh, events and on the official E3 feed, uh, that number goes up to eighty percent. Where did you read that, James? On what well, very interesting site called GamesIndustry.biz. You should give it a look sometime. Um, I, I genuinely, I was quite pleased to see like the the presence of indies I, as as much as they weren't officially at E3, like around E3. Typically, E3, the only real major presence for indies are any that. PlayStation way back in the day, if when PlayStation actually turned up, they used to feature a couple and then you'd get some sort of ID Xbox montage at Microsoft's press conference. And this year you had around that, you know, that E3 space, that E3 state of mind, as we're saying, Day of the Devs, Guerrilla Collective Part 2, having previously done a Guerrilla Collective um, event earlier in the week, Wholesome Direct, Devolver Digital obviously is um, indie focused, and even E3 ran its own indie showcase on the feed. All right, that indie showcase was 15 minutes long, only featured 24 titles, two of which were non-violent, but at least it's there. And I'm kind of hoping that this this is just at least a sign that indies will get to play a bigger part at E3, in years to come, on E3 and adjacent events, like you know, in years to come, because you know, as Chris says, like it's an expensive business come to the show. Like you know, ESA almost certainly sells the bulk of the big slots and and booth spaces and stuff to you know to studios and indies just cannot afford that. 
but I've seen much more interesting conversations around the range of indie titles and, and kind of as much excitement about you know indie titles, particularly some of those during Wholesome Direct, as I have for all the kind of the AAA stuff that's been uh, shown during the big big conferences. So yeah, hopefully it's a better a sign of better things to come. I'm I'm if I'm going to be if I was sceptical, I think when we go back to physical, it'll be harder for media to cover that stuff. But but the only other thing that's positive, potentially positive, is that. Is this E3 was a consumer show this year almost entirely? It had a it had a it had an app. Let's not talk about it. Um, but um, it was it was it was a consumer show. And um, as it steps back into physical, does it become that weird hybrid business physical uh, consumer thing, or does it go full consumer? And when you go full consumer, you have to give people a reason to come. You have to give people things to do while they're there. And and then they tr- they did a couple of bits in the previous years, but E3, almost all the good stuff's behind closed doors. Most of it's not playable. It's just demos and screens. It's not something that gamers, it's not much for gamers to play on the show floor at E3. So and Nintendo's booth is a very notable exception. It's why it's always the busiest booth. And um, if if ESA or, well, it's not really the ESA organise it, but that, the, all the people involved in E3, if they, if they want to... Um, bring in fans they have to give up floor space just to do things that for people to come and do it's not all about like the way packs works like most there are pack sell booths don't me wrong but actually the majority of that event is not sold it's just things they put on for people to buy tickets to instead and and that's what they'll have to do and, and therefore maybe there's a space for those indie games to be shown and played and and that would be nice but i guess we'll have to see what 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 how this all you know washes out um, once the dust has settled. So they've said that they want to do um, the, the plan uh, from from talking with the head of the ESA the other week um, was that they want to return to in-person event, obviously, but with probably a digital component as well. And I think as long as they have that official E3 digital component uh, and and there are going to be certain people that are just, you know, like, you know, in the media, even well, we're just covering this digitally because that's the only place it exists. I think that'll make it a lot easier for satellite events like Wholesome Games and and such to to get attention um, just by being kind of in orbit around the show proper. And and what you were saying about needing you know uh, those those things for people to do, um, I know they were talking about marketing activations before. And that, that actually, I don't think that's going to be a huge challenge to fit more of those in the LACC, um, just because E3 now compared to 2005, 2006, like in those years, every square inch of the LACC was absolutely consumed by the show. They had uh, Kencha Hall, which a lot of people talk fondly about now. That was actually a LACC parking garage. And they just, you know, convert it to a hall when there's a show that's big enough to require it. Uh, and, and in recent years, you've you've had E3 like without a Sony booth, E3 without an EA booth, without Activision Blizzard booth. Like these are, you know, there are enough big players dropping out of it that sometimes the E3 halls that they do use have felt a little sparse. So I I, I think it's entirely possible for them to maybe i mean i'm guessing it would 
certainly reduce the the cost they charge per square foot but like there's enough room in there to have uh a lot more of these things for for attendees to actually do and to use a lot more of that building uh in in a way that would make sense for a primarily open to the public fan event i think yeah I would agree with that. I came in quite uh, quite grumpy with this indie point. Like, ooh, look at all those people not watching the showcase. But you're right that there was 10,000 people that were watching the showcase and having a great time that might not have seen those games otherwise. So, I'm going to interject and go next. Um, mine, mine is far, far less serious, but it was just a point that stuck out with me. It's the Outer Worlds 2 trailer. Now, obviously, this has been shared and it, you know everyone enjoyed it because it's hilarious because the narration is very kind of tongue in cheek, very kind of, um, you know, self-deprecating about like the, you know, the state of game trailers. Um, and for those who haven't heard it, and I'm sure, sure you have, I'm just going to stick in the last bit here because it's spot on. That war sound can mean only one thing. We must gaze over an epic shot of a world. And there should be lens flares. Now we see our hero. But only the silhouette, because the developers haven't finished the design. Or finished the story. Or finished any gameplay that's actually ready to show. In fact, the only thing they have finished is the title. I'm going to be sad and confess that I've watched this two or three times this week and it is still funny to me. I think it's funny because it just really hammers home how little we are seeing when we think we're seeing brand new games. Like, it's something that we all know. We know... We know deep down, particularly when it's only a CGI trailer, and there were a few years back when, like, 90% of reveals were just CGI CGI trailers. Um but you're not really seeing anything of the game. They're not really showing anything. And it is, it is as, you know, as the narration says, like, it's because it's not there. It's like, you know, we, they're showing you things that do not exist. They're implying things and creating this, planting this seed of excitement for something that does not exist and may not exist in the, in the form that we see it at E3. And I just thought, I've spoken to a couple of um, PR and marketing people that, over the course of the week, just... Um, regard to other things and they've said like the, you know, that was a highlight for them because they said like it's just it's it's just spot on it's it's kind of very kind of on the nose of what it's like trying to put together a trailer for e3 when you have nothing to show um so yeah i just i i, I joked earlier in the week i'd love i'd love it if um more game trailers and more developments like was a bit more honest about things and like more more developers were more honest with their reveals i remember years ago um ea showed off Criterion's uh, extreme sports game they were working on, and it was extremely early alpha footage. Like, you know sometimes when they, they put up uh, footage, it's like, you know, alpha gameplay, but it's suspiciously, like, looks like the final game graphics. It's just, they're just trying to, to temper expectations because they know they've still got a long bit of development. This was, like, full-blown, almost like wireframes and, you know, very, very rudimentary characters. Um, and we don't often see that. We don't often say, hey, here's something that we're, almost, we're prototyping rather than working. And I know this goes back to the fact that it's, like, it's, it's become a consumer show. It's become an advertising platform for the games you're going to buy at Christmas or the following year. But I think, I th- I think I'd just... I'd like to see more developers saying, hey, we're working on this, but temper those expectations because this is all we have like 
Um, I can't imagine the Outer Worlds 2 logo got quite the same reaction or has built up quite the same expectation as, say, the Metroid Prime 4 logo from a few years back. Yeah, it's funny that you, you mentioning Nintendo because I did love that uh, that trailer too, and I thought about it a lot when Nintendo was showing the Breath of the World sequel uh, footage because, like, I think a lot of people expected a bit more, and they didn't show a whole lot because obviously, they, I mean, like, they're aiming for twenty twenty two bit, which we mentioned touched upon already. Like, I don't think that game is is nearly like ready at all at all <laughs> and they didn't have a lot to show and that really made me think about that trailer because i felt like nintendo was a bit stuck because they couldn't say oh we have nothing to show but th this footage could have well been from breath of the world and i wouldn't have noticed a difference i'll be really honest here uh, i i think it could have been a bit bolder and like showed us a bit more and i think it didn't and yeah that made me think of that honest trailer thing where i was like well they just had to show something, so they did what they could. And I'm still super happy that we saw a bit of it, but yeah. Well, I think I think if Nintendo hadn't have shown Breath of the Wild 2 in any way, shape or form at the end of its conference, um, they would have mutiny on that. Yeah, hands. oh yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I'm, and actually, I mean, I've gone through that one minute, I think 16 second trailer um, of Breath of the Wild, and uh, I'm just obsessed with Link's magic arm. Um, yeah, me too. But, <laughs> um, but it, but the um, that thing is a lot of the time. It's really interesting because a lot of the time when they do do announce logos or they tease stuff, it's often to preempt, um, like the Metroid Prime Four announcement. Um, everyone wanted a new Metroid game, and Nintendo had turned up to that direct with an announcement of the Samus Returns 3DS game, right? And they knew that the reaction to that was not going to be particularly positive because it was a 3DS game after the Switch had come out. It wasn't what people wanted. It's a port of one of their lesser favorite, lesser preferred Metroid games. And so to sort of pre sort of to counter that, they did the same with Bayonetta 3. This is my view on it. Maybe I'm wrong. But um, when they announced the Bayonetta 1 and 2 pack, they sort of said, but we're also working on Bayonetta 3. Don't worry, fans. You know, we've still got, we're not about, we're not, this is not all we're doing. Um, you know, flash a logo up. You know, um, and, um, but it comes back to bite you long term. Just to to, to deal with a, a few grumpy people that wanted more, um, you end up in this situation where every you know Elden Ring gets swamped over every single conference, you know. And it's it's I'm glad that that's over now. Um, but I really enjoyed the out. But the thing is, I actually watching that trailer made me go, "Why is there a trailer for this game?" <laughs> was the, uh, <laughs> the other thing. Like, not only does it make fun of the fact that they shouldn't really be doing this, I also thought to myself afterwards, "What? Why did you then?" Um, so it wasn't like an Xbox game that needed to be shoehorned into that. They already teased the Vowed the year before, and they didn't. That didn't show up. Shahid Ahmad, um, an indie developer who joined us on the last newscast, um, you can see it on Friday. He he had some issues with the kind of the Outer Worlds trailer, and he he made some really good points. Like about yeah, why did you do? Of all the games to do that, why do that? Like, he, he didn't say this, but, like, I, th I think it feels like the sort of thing that you should have seen at, like, Devolver. Devolver could have done, like, a game a game trailer with that sort of narration and been spot on. It felt really odd that it was at Xbox, but I think that's what makes it stand out and makes it kind of more memorable for people because it is, it's a big publisher and a big studio taking the mick out of itself for not having anything to show. Like, you know, compare that to... Okay, I'm, I'm looking at... Um, some of the other trailers that we that were shown in that same one, Starfield. Okay, all right. We know that it's um, it's in-game graphics, and it kind of gives it sets the tone for what the game might be. And apparently, there's a scratch on the side of a console that tells us where the uh, Elder Scrolls Six is going to be set. If you can believe the uh, the, the daft conspiracy theories there, um, Redfall, the new arcane game. That trailer is, according to the YouTube link I'm looking at right now, four minutes and fifty eight. 
That is a long trailer and I could not tell you anything about what that game will be because it doesn't... It, I can tell you it's four sassy characters. It will be awesome is what it will be. Okay, yes, it's by Arcane, <laughs> therefore it will be awesome. But, but it's by Arcane too. So to quote Dringo from a, a, another podcast, a rival podcast, because he, he pimps himself out to other shows, uh, it's an Arcane game, so no one's going to buy it. It will be an Ar- a Game Pass title that people play, but no one will actually invest That's money rude. in it. But... But it's it's I four sassy characters. I didn't say it quite so viciously. <laughs> <You> <laughs> yeah, that, but that's certainly <laughs> that that's certainly how brutal. It, <laughs> that sounds how it comes across. But um, but like no, because you're right, and it annoys me because like yeah, I I love the arcane games and people don't buy them and I have to confess that includes myself. I, honestly, like, it's one of the one of my favourite reasons about Bethesda being with Game Pass. Like I'm not like um. Uh, uh, I'm not entirely I don't think it's not needed for things like Elder Scrolls or Doom and stuff but Arcane's games are brilliant and amazing and they always undersell they always underperform and in many ways you can't just no I don't think a few other companies the fact they kept investing in that studio was fantastic but other if it was EA Arcane would have been gone years ago and um uh, so I'm pleased Bethesda kept them going, but I think in Games Pass, Game Pass, these games will find an audience. You know, they'll find they'll find fans who'll give it a go because it's just it's not very appealing. And I think that's probably the reason why we've got a great big CGI sort of uh, pitch trailer rather than gameplay because it sort of sets the thing. And actually, but I I know what you're going back to your point though, rather than deviating off onto Arcane. Um, uh, that's the thing I actually had when you said about you know what was your game of the show or or when people are talking about that I really struggle with this because every year the media go and the media gets shown stuff and a lot of the times we don't get to play it some of the times we do and the media get really excited and they come back and they write loads of really excited things about because they're, t- they're shown stuff and they believe it and I think of cyberpunk in this in that I saw two cyberpunk presentations at E3 and both times I thought that game is going to be incredible and it came out and it was, you know, it, it maybe it will be incredible once they fixed it. <laughs> but um, but it was, it sort of backs up a little bit to me about um, how it is a marketing show and the media have to work really hard to cut through it and at least be honest about the fact that we saw this, but we don't quite know if this is what it's going to be like at the end. It's really difficult. And so when people asking me like what my game of the show was at this E3, I really had to think, well, ignore the ones that you saw a trailer that got you excited and actually look at the stuff that you really saw, even though we couldn't play any of it really. Um, And I think that's, that's often the thing. And I did like the fact that the trailer made fun of the fact that this at E3 is just going to keep tricking you into thinking this looks cool isn't this exciting this is going to get us pre-ordering um and it's true but if anything it makes me sad because it's just true (laughs) it's just it's just that's it the reveals that confuse me are the ones where they show like an epic long cgi trailer that sets the tone and doesn't really show anything of the game and then still have gameplay like um so i'm thinking of the the opening to ubisoft forward the rainbow six extraction there was it felt like the longest mm. um, CGI trailer for that. Like, and all right, it was all in in-game graphics, and it's like you know, uh, kind of setting up the story and the premise. But then they went into a gameplay demo that was, or, or at least an explanation of the game with gameplay clips that was equally as long as like, just go with this. This is the this is we're not making films. Like the industry is not making films; it's making games. Don't tell Ubisoft that. <laughs> <laughs> nice interjection <laughs> but it's uh, yeah I, I just want to see how these games play it goes it goes back to and this is not an E3 thing but like I remember when um, Red Dead Redemption 2 was being announced and they kept Rockstar kept on showing off like these long long CGI trailers that were all 
cutscenes. It was all cutscenes. There was little to no gameplay in, in it at all. And then eventually they showed like a gameplay trailer. It was like five, ten minutes long. It's like in Red Dead, Red, Red Dead Redemption 2, you're going to be doing this. You're going to be doing this. And I could see it. It's like, right, this is what I want to know. This is giving me more of a sense of why I want to get this game than watching things that happen in it while you're not touching the controller. And, um, and I think that applies to E3 as well. Yeah. They need both, though. They they need to have the the here's a few minutes of pre-rendered CGI trailer kind of thing that just gets people hyped and gets people sharing it on YouTube. And then to actually back that up with like, here is the details of how this game actually plays is valuable and worthwhile, I think. Like that's that's kind of how Nintendo does a lot of their big reveals, right? They they give you like the the little spicy trailer thing, and then they just spend an interminable amount of time talking about the details of like a double jump or something, and and people love them for it. So as much as Ubisoft, there's like room to criticize them on a million fronts. Like that, I don't think I I don't think complaining that the, they pair the flashy CG trailer with the marketing thing with you know. The, the sizzle with the steak is is a bad thing because like we want the steak so they're giving us the steak but then they want to sell games so they're they're giving us the sizzle too like that that seems like a you know kind of a fair compromise to me you've just brought to mind uh, one of my favorite comments off uh, off our team slack this week was during the uh, the the flashy trailer at the start of the smash brothers reveal that the tekken bloke is going to be in smash brothers and he's chucking different characters off the cliff and i believe it was you brendan who said yes throw them all off the cliff <laughs> just declaring war that on was, Nintendo's that was IP. the best trailer of, of it was the best me. but like we're we're going to talk about our highlights later but the, uh, honestly i was not as joyously happy at any other moment of the show than watching that trailer and realized what they were doing with the cliff thing. As, as soon as he came back to the cliff, I'm like, Oh yes, the, the entire <laughs> roster is going off that sucker. This is going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> I am um, oddly though, on the, on the flip side of that, the Metroid dread trailer made me go. Yeah. And then I watched the Treehouse afterwards and I went, Oh yeah, I want that. Um, you can get it wrong, you know, um, with all its flashy, 3D, you know, I remember even seeing some journalists saying, oh, well, they've gone quasi-3D. They hadn't. It was just in the trailers. And it, everyone didn't like that. And then when they sh- well, everyone, but some people didn't. And then when they showed the actual gameplay properly afterwards, that's when people started. I heard it several times. Oh, if you watch it in the treehouse, it looked really good. And it's really bad when the trailer makes people doubt it. <laughs> uh, <but clears throat> Brendan, what was your big takeaway from the week? Um, so... This one is is probably a little like sky is falling kind of stuff, but um, I, I so I interviewed uh, Stanley Pierre Louis, the head of the ESA, uh, a week or two ago, and it was um, kind of a, a frustrating interview, I guess, because there's only so much that he can say about um, various topics. Because, like, the ESA doesn't really have so much of a uh, will of its own so much as it is the will of its members combined, right? So they've either taken a position on something and everyone knows what it is, or you ask them a question that they haven't taken a public position on, and it's basically like, oh, well, you know, whatever our members tell us. Um, They operate by consensus, 
was was the the line that he came back to uh, time and again there. And uh, I, I was thinking that like we we've already seen the the video game industry is uh, splintered in in the past. 10, 15 years, I guess, you know, once upon a time, E3 was the, the center of everything in gaming because everything in gaming was basically like, well, there's consoles and people think PC is dying. (laughs) Um, and there's no mobile market to speak of really yet. Uh, but since then we've, we've just seen, you know, an explosion of, of the, the games industry into, into, PC, uh, you know, streaming, subscriptions, mobile, free-to-play console, all these different business models, all these different ways that you can sell people video games. And uh, you have companies that are excelling in very specific portions of that industry. And as a result, they kind of, they don't have as much in common and as many shared interests throughout the industry as they used to. Uh, like I, I was asking um, the ESA head about, you know, uh, gambling, like esports betting, because pro sports betting in North America, you know, in the U.S., it was illegal up until a few years ago. Then there was a Supreme Court ruling about it, and now they've got sport, uh, you know, sports books inside the arena where you can, you know, place a bet during halftime if you want. Uh, and and if you watch the games, they're the commercials are, you know, half of them are about gambling now. Uh, cryptocurrency and NFT, something that some people in the industry are dealing with, and a lot of others aren't. Uh, loot boxes. EA makes more than a quarter of their revenue every year from FIFA Ultimate Team packs. Uh, not just FIFA, all Ultimate Team packs. Um, but a lot of other publishers are kind of veering away from it. There are edutainment publishers in the ESA. There are platform holders arguing with developers about the cut that they deserve and their antitrust issues about about this you know like one of the biggest legal things happening in the industry is is apple versus epic and the esa can't really take a side on that just because of you know it has platform holders and it also has developers in its membership so i i think you've got it's harder to represent the interests of the entire industry now. And you have so many incredibly huge players in the industry, Valve, Apple, Amazon, Google, that aren't even ESA members to start with. So what E3 made me think was I like you you can't get the the people who are your members to all come together and support this, you know, marketing exercise for the benefit of everyone in the industry. And I'm wondering if if that is kind of an ill omen for their their ability to have the support of all of the industry when it comes to its uh, its lobbying activities in the future. And you look at the lobbying activities, like their their policy issues. So the Supreme Court has already decided on First Amendment protections for games and and you know legislating violent games. Uh, other other issues that they that they you know lobby on about like immigration and skilled worker visas uh, or intellectual property rights and, and and privacy rights like are are those there are other trade organizations 
uh, fighting for those. And and they are, you know, with large tech companies like Apple, Amazon, and Google that aren't members of the ESA. Uh, I'm, I'm sure everything that Disney does on the uh, IP protection front, while it might not cover every possible, you know, permutation of the the issue that would be applicable to video games like there, there are big people big companies out there fighting the esa's fight on a lot of these issues um i think there's still legit concerns and, and there will be a need for for an esa uh, to represent the entire gaming industry on some issues like uh trade policy in the u.s and and things like the the gaming disorder diagnosis um that the world health organization came out with i think that and the general you know concerns about addiction in games like there's still some fights for them to fight there but looking forward uh i i wonder one is will people see that there is the same need for the esa that there had been in previous decades and it's it's kind of a similar question to like will people will these companies see the same need for E3 and the same value in it. Uh, so that that was sort of like what I've been turning over in my head uh, as, as I sat through in E3 that really felt like none other before it, um, like the ESA does not have everyone in the industry on board in any way, shape or form. Yeah, I actually find the ESA quite interesting because in the UK we have Yuki and Yuki have like 10 times the number of members in its group than the ESA. ESA very much focuses on some of the bigger companies primarily. But I, I'm not into, I'm not, I'm not, into, I'm not so sure. Last year, I, I had a chat off the record with one of the big companies that isn't to E3. And, um, and they couldn't make it sense of it from a marketing perspective. It didn't, it didn't satisfy their needs as a mark from a marketing perspective. But they did say very nice things about ESA's um, ability as a lobbying group. And then I started looking them up. And like Stanley Pierre Louise, he's been doing this, he's been doing this his entire career, right? He was, you know, he was the, he's been, he's a lawyer. He's a legal guy, you know, he's, he's not an events person. He's not a marketing person. He was one of the senior people at the Recording Industry Association of America, right? He's been, works for, he's worked for Viacom and, and sort of quite a few major corporate uh, corporations doing this sort of thing. He's, he, and I think he's built a team that's very much specialist in the lobbying, in the speaking to government, in the presenting information and data and research. Because that's the thing that um, uh, trade bodies have to do. It's not just trying to convince um you know, Disney can sit there and say our business would benefit from these rights and that kind of stuff and um, the American government. But ESA can then go and go to all of its members and go, right, here's the position of, I don't know how many members it's got, but some significant businesses worth this amount of company money in the games industry. This is their position. This is their data that we can present to um, government. And that's kind of what their role is, really. It's the one to collect all the information and then present it to the government. And in Stanley in particular, by the looks of it, and I'm assu I assume the team as well he's built, seems to be a bit of specialist in that. What they're not specialists in, and you can see this from, if you've ever been, is actually making events um, or doing anything with marketing. It's not really their thing. Um, E3 is brilliant and popular and global. But in spite of itself, <laughs> because as a as a consumer show, it's not great. As a business show, it's not great. You know, if you ever go to Gamescom, you can actually see what a good, highly produced uh, video game show can be, um, or even packs if you for consumer side only. And um, and E three isn't any isn't isn't close to that sort of stuff. What makes E three exciting are all those 
uh, press conferences that have absolutely nothing to do with the ESA and E3. And um, and I, so I'm not, I, I, I understand, I can hear the concern and that kind of stuff. I'm not quite sure that, I'm not quite sure I buy the connection between their inability to get people on page for E3 as being the same as, I mean, the industry isn't on the, pay, on the same page on quite a lot of issues. Um, and, uh, but when it, when it comes, if the government decides they're going to legislate against something like in the UK, for instance, in the next month or so, we should have, we'll have a ruling from the UK government on loot boxes. Um, the UK have to present, you know, the trade body has to present information. They have to present data. Whereas, um, so the companies have to find a consensus or they have to find a consensus. It's, it's a requirement. Whereas um, E3, they don't have to find a consensus. They just need to, you know, they can they can try and compromise as much as they can, but they've got to do it in a way that um, will please the majority of it. And, and if some people aren't into it, they can just go away. Um, Didn't we just see like sure Epic and EA refuse to turn over data to Parliament in, in that loot box inquiry? Uh, we, we, I mean, there will be certain data they won't be able to do. But it, I mean, it's, yeah, not all data will be presented. But it's still the job of the trade body to you know. It's not so much about the those, those inquiries. I'm talking about things like. Um, what Yuki and Tiger did in the UK around uh, tax breaks, for instance, you know, they, they, they had to make a case for it. And so they went to their members, not all of their members would have submitted information or data, but they're going to get enough of it together to present and sh- show where the opportunity is. Um, and that is what the ESA is. Otherwise, governments don't want a thousand games companies <laughs> sending them emails with evidences to, you know, they want one organisation to bring that together and present it and make the case. Um, and that's kind of what the ESA's basic job is, right? It's to, it's to, it's to do that. I mean, there are there are massive companies like Disney that just don't need to go through that process because they're Disney. But you know, it, you have to be really big to be able to <clears throat> sort of be represent yourself, I guess. Chris, round us off. What has been your big takeaway from the past week? I actually was a bit like I kept thinking of things to write about after E3. What's my opinion piece on E3? And I realised all of them are I've probably done them before, um, and. Was a, I think the last time I went to E3 2019, people said it was boring, but I found it really interesting because there was everyone had a subscription service. Everyone was launching a subscription service. Square Enix were talking about, if you weren't doing it, they were talking about it. And I thought, this is a really interesting industry movement. And this year, and I think it's because I wasn't talking to as many people and there wasn't as much industry going on, there wasn't anything that made me go, oh, that's new. Um, there was some, there was Elden Ring, uh, to a lesser extent, what the Borderlands spin-off because it is technically connected to Borderlands, but um, that Redfall game, there was a bit of new uh, Riders Republic, there's some new IP here, but I've had E3s where there's been lots of new IP. And uh, I thought there was a lot of Hollywood stuff. There was a lot of teaming up with, you know, there, was, there was a few movie trailers here and there. There was teaming up with Fast and Furious. There was um, uh, the Stranger Things uh, crossover with some game I've forgotten now. Um, and there was um, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean and Sea of Thieves. And there was a lot of that going on. A lot of mo- Hollywood seemed to be spotting that video games is where a lot of their audience is now so let's go into video games in a big way i sort of felt there was a bit of that but that's getting not that new um, and i and i sort of so i sort of noticed a few things that you know were trending across the fit stuff but it wasn't like oh this is a change of direction i think one of the things that pleased me the most was that yes there were a lot of 2022 games being announced but when all said and done it's looking like quite a good Christmas um, for video games, uh, which I wasn't really expecting um, a month ago. I thought we were going to see maybe one or two big titles um, 
Uh, but if you get to sort of September onwards, there's Rainbow Six and there's Far Cry and there's Pokemon and there's a Metroid game. And Nintendo have a bunch of games, nothing particularly massive, but they've got a lot of stuff in there. Uh, Halo, Forza. Um, and there's a lot of smaller stuff as well. I just, I looked at it, I looked at the line at Back for Blood and I thought, that's, that's all right, that is. <laughs> it looks like quite a good Christmas, actually. Um, so um, I, uh, those are the things that I spotted. It was. It wasn't anything particularly revelationary, but it was. I thought it was all right. It was good. It was like I. I was speaking to a fellow journalist um, earlier last night, and he's going, kind of, "How do you feel about the the incredibly disappointing E three this year?" And I, I have to confess, I wasn't disappointed. I wasn't excited. It would. He didn't come with that that thrill, that um, that adrenaline of, wow, you know, there are so much, there's so many interesting things going on in the games industry. So many interesting titles coming out, so many big promising blockbusters coming out, so many interesting kind of strategies and moves between the companies. Like, it didn't have any of that. I think I, I think we were saying on the, uh, the Slack, I think the closest I felt to that excitement was the start of the Nintendo Direct. It was feeling, oh, here it comes, this Nintendo. And that is purely because that's just, that's just that built-in Nintendo appreciation i'll say appreciation rather than fanboyism um but beyond that like I, the, the way i class it like as much as you know daniel's right like e3 is a state of mind like for me this year's e3 it's just it's an e3 that happened i'm glad it happened i'm glad that there was an e3 this year rather than this this spread of events over the course of the summer um which just feels so separate that you can't really look at the big picture of, of what has actually been announced over the course of however many months it was. I'm glad it was all kind of condensed into one week and it, it, it came close to kind of capturing that usual feel of right, this is what's happening in games. But overall it's just like it, it was it was sort of an E three, but it was it was over before it began, as as Brendan said in one of his pieces. Like it's it's just it, by the time you're kind of gearing up, usually you get to the end of Nintendo on Tuesday. And it's like right, wow, and then you get like two or three days of hands-on and interviews and more information coming out. And this year it just stopped. I know there were like there was like an Xbox did it, Xbox did an extended uh, showcase yesterday, and Steam Games Fest is still going on. You know, towards the tail end of the week, but by and large, kind of come Wednesday, it felt like that there was just this hard stop to anything interesting being announced or new revelations or anything. And it, it, yeah, it kind of it was almost anticlimactic a bit. I yeah, I, I agree. It felt like almost, I mean, it felt like an incomplete E3 for me. But that has to do a lot with the fact that Sony was not there. And as much as I loved what Xbox presented, and as much as I usually do not want to feed that discourse of like, oh my god, who won E3? It did feel a bit odd to have nothing to compare Xbox with. Uh, and so it's a bit of a weird one. It was just there was there was stuff lacking, like we all know that EA is later, Sony's going to do a thing, but when I don't know, I just uh, yeah, it all felt a bit underwhelming. It all felt like there was something missing. I had a good time. There was a highlight in almost everything I've watched, except for Capcom. Sorry, Capcom. Uh, and <laughs> um, but yeah, I just Sony not being there for me was a was a bit of a of a letdown because. As much as I thought I didn't like that discourse of like comparing the platform holders between them, it turns out it's difficult for me to understand whether or not I like Xbox if I don't if I can't compare it with, with Sony. Which sounds really bad now that I say it out loud, so maybe I shouldn't say no. that, but here you go. It's said now. No. No. <laughs> Rob Fay said it uh, in his po- in his article. That's oh, then on that's games fine. If you said it, I can say he, it. He, he, he is, <laughs> it, is, it was... 
unlike last year, I've got a good idea now of what's coming up for the year. I've got a good idea where the industry's headed in the next 12 months, say. But I don't know everything. And whereas previous E3s, you sort of knew it all. And, you know, you talk about EA not being there, but EA's big game for Christmas outside of its sports title is Battlefield. And that was shown. And um, you talk about Sony not being there. They kind of weren't. They, I assume they've got more to show. They haven't shown us Deathloop or anything recently, you know. But they did show us Horizon a couple of weeks ago, didn't they? I don't know. Maybe it was a month yeah, but ago. But that's, and that's not quite it, is it? Like, that's not quite enough in my book. No, 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 no. But that's their big game of Christmas. So I got an idea, but I don't have everything. Um, you know, we didn't see all of the EA games, but we, we, we did see one of the big ones. We didn't see all the PlayStation games. We did see one of the big ones. Warner Brothers turned up with Bat for Blood. Now, where's Lego Star Wars? Like, I've seen that now at multiple <laughs> E3s, and I think it looks brilliant. But where was that? I mean, I can think, I can think Hogwarts, sure, you know, not ready yet. The DC uh, games I've got coming, whatever, fine. But where was that game? That game's been in the works for about 50 years, um, and I'm really excited for it. Um, but it, that was missing, and maybe that's still to come. Maybe that's still going to come out at the end of the year, I don't know. And, you know, Pokemon wasn't there, even though Pokemon's coming out this Christmas I know it was shown in, in a, little, a little while ago it doesn't doesn't need to be there and um it was a it wasn't a full picture it's like when I started writing about the Nintendo thing about how actually Nintendo don't have a big game at Christmas I think it was James that went well don't forget Pokemon I was like oh yeah <laughs> so you don't get much bigger than that <laughs> um and it was a uh, it's because it was it wasn't there it wasn't the show so I didn't it sort of I didn't see it. Call of Duty wasn't there, but Activision still showed up in, in bits and bobs, but Call of Duty wasn't there. And we know Call of Duty will be coming. Um, so there was certain, I've got, a, it's much better than last year. I've got a sort of idea, but it, it, there were bits missing. Um, and, um, you know, uh, I suspect we'll, it won't be long before we know, you know, EA is going in July. I, sus- I expect Sony will be somewhere in between and we will have a good idea by then. But yeah, I agree. Let's end on a positive or at least a vaguely optimistic note. Um, what was our favourite kind of game or trailer or reveal of the show? Uh, Daniel, why don't you kick us off? Um, yeah, there's a few things I'm looking forward to. Um, a couple of sequels in there. Outworlds 2, uh, I'm up for. Slime Rancher 2, I'm also up for. Um, I think 12 minutes got a release date, I believe. Yes. Uh, August the 19th. August. There we go. We're on it because she's just memorised every <laughs> release date now. Um, no, it's because it is my game of the show. Ah, perfect. <laughs> there we go. A little bit of a spoiler. Um, as well, I'm, I'm looking forward to the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy game because uh, th- I think that was one of the more all-encompassing reveals for me in that they just came out. They went, here's the game. Here's some gameplay. This is what you do in the game. And it's coming out in October. And I thought, oh, that's nice. That's how you present a game. It shows me what it is. And I'm going to, I'll get it. Um, so yeah, I think I think those are my my highlights that I'm looking forward to. Guardians definitely does look good. Um, Marie, anything other than 12 minutes for you? Uh, yes, of course, more, always more. But yeah, 12 minutes has been on, at the top of my uh, list of anticipated games for like, I don't remember when it was first unveiled, but it's been a while now. And I'm so, so happy that it finally has a release date and I can't wait to play that. So that's at the top. Uh, Redfall is very uh, like yeah close to the top as well I know we didn't see anything of it but I don't know just like that trailer was everything uh, I just want every game to have as diverse a cast as this game seems to have and it looks gorgeous and I don't know it could be it could be awful but I just it was full of what it of promises of what it could be and I just hope it does end up as good as it looked during that that reveal I just loved everything about it um, I want to briefly mention uh, Somerville, Jumpstrips, Somerville, because that trailer was 
amazing. I just, I don't remember if that had a release date. I just love the atmosphere. I liked that like dark thing, whatever this game really is. It just looked amazing to me. But mostly my game, like not mostly, but WarioWare was actually an absolute highlight for me because WarioWare is just so much fun. It's silly, it's absurd. This one is co-op, which is amazing. So there's nothing I don't like about it. And yeah, I don't know. I'm in the mood for more absurd, silly games and WarioWare is going to hit that spot. After a year of pandemic, all I want is absurd stuff and like just pretending to be an elephant, picking up apples like in previous WarioWares or like, I don't know, drink a glass of water really fast and all that sort of completely stupid and silly and absurd stuff that you do in WarioWare. I just want more of that. So I'm really happy there's a new entry in that franchise. Brendan, what, uh, which title cracked the thick outer layer of your cynicism? This is uh, this shocked me, um, but the the title that surprised me the most at E three and had me actually like excited about it, having been like I could not care less about this thing uh, before that, uh, Halo Infinite. Oh, really? And yeah, we're all surprised. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the only reason is uh, because I I saw that the academy mode to like teach people how to get good at the game will have bots in it and bots has been the only thing that i wanted out of halo since uh 2001 when the original (laughs) came out i was like the only thing that keeps this from being a perfect game is no bots clearly this is the one thing that they will address in halo 2 and they didn't and i've been waiting 20 years and now there's gonna be bots so I'm going to get to enjoy Halo without having to, like, mingle with any of y'all. <laughs> this is the dream. Great. I do miss... I'm going to side you there. I, I miss bots. Like, you'd think with all the advances we've had in AI and computing power that bots would be a thing. But they're not. Like, you do have to play with other people. And I don't want to because other people are better than me. But I'm better <laughs> than bots if I put them on easy. So, exactly. More bots, please. Yeah, I agree. Uh, if Halo's got bots, I'm all over that. Um, Chris, what about yourself? Um, well, I, I try, try to work out the real answer is Breath of the Wild B two because that that that's Obviously, the real answer, yeah. right? But we didn't. It's a tease. We were teased, and I was teased with Mario and Rabbits. I love the first Mario and Rabbits. I think it's a masterpiece, and I was teased with that as well. And um, but I didn't see anything beyond the there was a bit of gameplay but there wasn't really so i'm looking forward to those but i was marketed to and i was but i'm not going to pick so i'm not going to pick them um the other game that i saw that i actually saw a lot of gameplay of and i thought all oh, that is metroid dread i think that looks brilliant but um i'm going to pick and you won't be surprised to hear this is the sea of thieves uh, a pirate's life um it's back because not only i've started i'm i'm you know people know that i know the people at rare they all follow me on twitter we have like we have conversations all the time i had no idea that was coming um and um in fact when i watched the trailer for it i just played ratchet and clank last a uh, couple of weeks ago and there was a scene in Ratchet and Clank where there's a metal dog and a load of pirates in in a prison cell and the pirates are trying to get the metal dog who's got a key around his neck to come along so he can, you know, undo the thing. It's, it's, a, it's a scene from the Pirates of the Caribbean ride that's in the movie as well. And when I um, saw that start to happen in the trailer, even though there were plenty of other clues before that moment, I thought, I said, oh, everyone's ripping off Pirates of the Caribbean at the minute. And then it turned out that <laughs> it wasn't ripping it off. It was Pirates of the Caribbean. And I was genuinely delighted and um, thankfully this trailer will be out after the embargo list i've now seen a lot of it 
and it's it's everything. It's absolutely everything. It's a proper cinematic Sea of Thieves story. It's one where other players don't interfere with your story. There's other been other Sea of Thieves stories you can take part in, but other players can come in and sink your ship and be a pest. That can't happen in this. It's 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 blockbuster. It's got uh, it's got voice casts and all this kind of stuff. Big scenes. Um, you end up fighting the. Um, uh, Davy Jones is uh, ship with Captain Jack by your side. You know, um, uh, it is. I loved it, and I and I'm all over it. And it's only it's out next week, so I'm I'm excited. Um, so that was mine. That was my uh, moment. Finishing it off, then um, is it a cop out if I, I I couldn't pick one title? So I want to cop out and just say Xbox Game Pass because there wasn't any one title where I was like, right, there, I that's it, that's the game I need to get this Christmas or within the next year. But Game Pass-wise, like, I instantly downloaded Dishonored Death of the Outsider because I finished Dishonored too early this year and I have been looking for that and now it's on Game Pass, I can just download it at no additional cost. Um, I've already set it to pre-install Psychonauts 2, Hades, Forza Horizon 5, Microsoft Flight Simulator. I will now be setting it for Halo Bots because I'm definitely up for some Halo bots. Um, I'm Chris, you and I are like trying to work out if there's a way of playing in the browser so we can try and play Age of Empires 4 without having to invest in a machine that can run Age of Empires 4. I'm definitely up for trying out Worlds 2. Contraband's going to be coming day one to it. Contraband is that um, Avalanche Studios... Uh, they showed nothing about it it's a co-op thing but it looks like it's going to be a co-op heist game which knowing avalanche it would be some sort of open world thing so i'm all over that starfield has been described as a people keep on saying it's a han solo simulator but the quote that i saw was like starfield is basically indiana jones in space so like kind of collecting artifacts i'm all over that i will attempt redfall because it's arcane like there was just so much on game pass that i can instantly access or kind of you know try out without having to invest in in titles I may not enjoy, that, yeah, I, I, is, is Game Pass too much of a cop-out? Game Pass 1E3, I think. I don't, I, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't think there's little <laughs> doubt in that. It was, it was, it was such good value. It looks so good. I think, though, I've got this bit of anxiety about what Game Pass is doing to the value perception of video games. Um, and, uh you know, almost everything Nintendo announced was greeted by people saying, "How much are they charging for Metroid?" You know, it was, it, and um, I thought it perhaps even more, felt more so than I've seen before. And um, you know, even I was talking to uh, uh, our marketing guy, Games and Shop, his marketing guy Dan, just before this, and we were talking about what we saw at E3 about what we were going to get. And I said, "Well, I'm going to get Forza. I don't know if I'll get Halo." And I thought, "Oh, hang on, I've got Game Pass. I've already got Forza, and I've already got Halo." And it's it's really it's really weird way of thinking that when I'm looking at the lineup of games I'm thinking of getting this Christmas, I realise that Psychonauts too. Like I'm interested in that, but I'm not going to get it. Oh wait, no, I've already got it. It's 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 a uh, that's really suddenly I can't justify buying certain games. You know, Marie mentioned WarioWare, and I'm like, well, will I be, will I be up for that, or will I be too busy playing all of the not free but basically free games I'm getting in, in Game Pass? I just I don't know this. It's a real fascinating development in games. Microsoft is accelerating it in such a way that I, I think the industry is it's going to happen. But it, it's just um, I'm a bit nervous about it. Uh, but um, it, yeah it is it definitely was the thing that everyone i think i've heard numbers being thrown around by fellow people in the industry about how many people subscribe to game pass just after watching that demonstration and it's hundreds of thousands is the numbers that i was given so it's um that's uh that's a good indication that a lot of people saw the value in game pass for there and then 
the way I kind of justify it is the money that I'm not spending on titles that are on Game Pass is money I can then spend on Metroid Dread or eventually getting a PlayStation 5. But I don't know, I, we, we touched on Game Pass a lot and we talked a lot about the subscription model in the um, the newscast we did today. So go back back uh, to our YouTube channel, have a look at that. But there there is this kind of, this Game Pass guilt. That's the, the phrase I think we need to, to get going. It's Game Pass guilt where you play through a game on Game Pass, um, such as Control is uh, the most recent example I'd give and feel like I should have bought that. I should have bought that and, and supported the uh, the developers. Death of the Outsider. I, I downloaded that instantly on you know as soon as it was up. I was like I should have bought that. I should have bought the isn't there? There's the Arcane Collection. It's only like twenty quid and it's all three Dishonored games and Prey. I should have bought that rather than doing it on Game Pass. But it's on Game Pass. I've got Game Pass. It's there. So yeah, it's 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 very interesting to see what that model is doing to just the the attitudes of of people even like myself yeah. so i've done legacy games like there used to be no such thing as a legacy games business like you know the game would come out three months later it would be in the pre-owned bins and it's over for that game and through sales on steam where things are reduced heavily or through things like game pass these video games are finding and in the, the developers behind them are finding extra money to be made um by uh, getting the games out there via different means so i don't i i think i don't i i don't feel guilty about that necessarily but i mean you talked about you know money you're not spending on game pass games you can spend on switch games but james i know your problem isn't money your problem is time it's massively time. and if and so you know you can sit there and think oh you know i'm not spending money on forza horizon 5 so i can buy metroid dread you can yeah you can buy it you could afford it but you can't actually find the time to play it and um <laughs> and i think that's that's the yeah we'll see what the economy is going to do in the, in the years ahead but i think that's a that's a big one to work out. And I think Game Pass, it's a challenge for Game Pass as well because they've got these games in Game Pass that are huge, that take up hundreds of hours. And I was talking to the Rare folk um, around the CFEs thing and they were saying about, I asked them about the fact that they've got an unusual situation and that they're a service game within a service. So that when a big game lands that isn't CFEs, like Forza Horizon, for instance, or Halo, they see, I suspect they see, uh, loads of their audience stop playing their game to go and play that other free game that's within the same service. Um, they might come back afterwards, um, but it creates a very interesting thing where you just what you're getting is yo-yoing of gamers on your on your on your game. And how do you you keep talking about how you onboard players in the first place? But how do you re-onboard them if they've been away for three months and you and you know it's 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 it affects development. It's affecting it's affecting how games are being monetized. It's it's affecting the value perception of games. It's it's really it's, it's so significant. Um, but um, who knows? We're in danger of getting into another discussion, which, given that we were trying to wrap up the episode, is not ideal. So I am going to wrap us up there. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for listening and tuning in. Uh, if you're just listening to this episode alone, you can subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice where you'll find all previous episodes. On that feed, you will also find the all five GI E3 newscasts, the series of GI Live sessions that we uh, added to the feed, our previous series uh, game developers playlist and five games of. More from those in a minute. We've got, um, i say in a minute soon, we've got another five games of in the works and we are in the process of arranging more game developers playlist. In the meantime, you can get more news, insight and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz.
Chris, what was your big takeaway from the week? Maybe come to me last. Okay. <laughs> because I have, sort of, I have a few small points that I noticed, but I don't think they're overly new. That's and fine. I'll just bit, cut this it was a, You're just making my edit harder. That's fine. 